Hello everyone, welcome to this talk. Thank you for coming along for the opportunity to um, come and speak. It's going to be a, a chat and a discussion around um, recent Marxist criticism. The title is Arts Emancipatory Promise Commodified, but also Recast, which is um, a way of talking about four themes that I've chosen to pick out from uh, texts post-2008, basically. So the four themes are firstly romanticism, then uh, sabotage, the idea of sabotage and real abstraction, then moving on to speculation now, and finally a kind of dialectical view of language itself, talking about Fanon, legacies of Fanon and counter-language. Have artworks become commodities? Does that actually matter? What does it mean for our understandings of art, our encounters with it, um, our understanding of it, particularly from a Marxist perspective? That's what I'm going to look at um, in this talk. From Marx onwards, critics have wondered, are artworks commodities? Within which the bigger questions are, does that commodification matter? And if so, why does it matter? Or what does the process of commodification actually do to an artwork? And what possible negative capability might it actually usher in, if any is discernible? And how might we discern it, such capabilities? Um, Via the survey of summaries and themes in Marxist criticism, I'm going to answer all of these questions now. So don't worry about them. Or do worry about them. But, yeah. <laughs> Commodities are, um, as, as we know, um, produced by human labour time and they're brought to market by a capitalist and they are exchanged. The idea of art being a special case has its own history. It obviously threatens an idea of, uh, a bourgeois idea of freedom of the artist, of individualism above but it also threatens um ideas of kind of enshrined ideas of value and of purpose and of a higher kind of spiritual realm so commodities definitely do contain contradictions exchange value means use value equivalent to all other commodities from one point of view um they meet a precisely felt social need from another uh, many things that we encounter in the world have have at least one aspect of being a commodity um for example having a price um, without actually bearing all the characteristics of commodification. Um, and this is where the idea of a process of commodification um, comes to the fore. Areas of life and the reproduction of life become more commodified over time as capitalism develops, as capitalism finds a way to subsume them more securely within its logic, moving towards um, what is framed as total subsumption, in which the process is complete. Conceivably, you could also imagine moving back out from such a state to uh, a process of decommodification. But I think we kind of see this rather less than we see processes of commodification. Um, we can see that art and entertainment has reached a quite advanced stage of commodification, um, if not actual, actually total subsumption. Um, but again, what of the recent fate of art under these conditions? Quickly, on Marx himself writing about art. So Marx wrote a number of short reflections on art, but nothing um, extended. Uh, his figure of natural production in Capital is the silkworm whose nature is to spew out silk, just as Marx says, Milton spewed out Paradise Lost. It was in his nature. Um, his further example in Drops of Volume 3 is of a singer who sings because they love to sing. Uh, if they are then employed to sing for a wage, the song has become a commodity, and their singing is labour. 
their employer might extend the working day, for example, suppress their pay, record the singing um, in some way, and then disseminate their song or broadcast it to gain more return from it. We can extrapolate from the example. Um, so artworks exist in the market. Literary works are published, duplicated, and sold. The most niche poetry pamphlet, if sold, takes part in the great wheel of commodity exchange, albeit perhaps infinitesimally small. Um, but then again, lots of production activity goes into producing goods which fail to sell at market, or which fail to return the costs which went into them. Um, Marx in Capital, Volume 3, calls this insane production. Um, someone who anachronistically cleaves to Hegel's pre-industrial sense that the product made is an extension of the person who made it, uh, their, their mirror in the world. Um, it's a cleaving that you don't just see in um, the production of small-scale art objects. You also see it perhaps in uh, Dragon's Den, in which trainee capitalists um, who don't understand um, what their products are are then humiliated by a set of higher-level uh, possessors of capitalist knowledge, i.e. the so-called dragons, um, who tell them their ideas are rubbish and that they're not going to invest and that they're out. Um, does any of this matter? Um, good question. Um, it matters in terms of uh, initially trying to work out if there's an intentional quality to um, an artwork. If something is has been created as a commodity, that, in that intentionality is lost. And so a, a whole swathe of a criticism that um, depends on interpreting such intentionality falls by the wayside. Um, and a, cert a certain limit point of critical work arises. Um, but for the critics that we are about to briefly chart, I would say that the question about artworks um, is essentially, uh, and their commodification, is essentially um, an ambient precondition, not a fascinating insight into art right now. Um, and it's what we do with that ambient precondition and how we build on top of it, which is, which is important. Um, so romanticism. Romanticism from, uh, oh, well, up until the present. Um, so as a look for a way out to look to intellectual currents before the rise of industrial capitalism, um, this is what this this trend um, to to try to work out an ongoing romanticism seems to be um, predicated on. Uh, bourgeois philosophy itself is constantly trying to do this, i.e., um, to go back to an earlier period which can prefigure and kind of undo the realities of that capitalist development has brought and wrought upon the world. So to pick random fairly random examples, a gambon on ancient Roman law, for example, or um, Heidegger uh, finding meaning in the ideas of and the words of ancient Greece, um, and so on and so on. You can find this pattern everywhere. Um, capitalism is figured, therefore, as a kind of politics or a control system, as an idea of distribution, or even as an a philosophical idea that Marx just happened to have um, within these histories. Um, and it can be therefore encompassed within larger histories of philosophy. Um, romanticism is contemporary, in its original form, is contemporary to the rise of industrial capitalism, and is therefore a source which inspires a, distinguished, a distinguishable engagement between romanticism and Marxism. Um, 
at origin in late Romanticism as theorised by Adorno and in recent imaginative rethinkings of communism, in which bourgeois philosophers again um, weighed in. An interesting variant on this recent trend is the work of Stuart Martin, in particular an article called Artistic Communism, a Sketch. So I'm going to discuss this. Um, for Martin, capitalism appears as an absolute work of art. Quote, opposition to it is therefore directed to an anti-capitalist notion of absolute art, or indeed anti-art. This orientation brings communism into view as a relation to absolute art. Um, so this is artistic communism. This is Martin's idea. It's, it's a relation. Between Schelling and Marx, only glimpses of what art taken as an absolute, the absolute of communism, appear. Um, we should note from the start that the philosophy of absolute art is almost certainly never going to manifest as a materialist one. So Martin looks for glimpses and correlations. For example, Hegel's scribbled manifesto, um, often called the oldest systematic program of German idealism of 1796-7, um, might have pointed the way. And indeed, it has been taken up in a recent poem about protest and community by Nisha Ramia called After the Event, which also paraphrases Holderlin. Theorists of an absolute art, that is, art as freedom, constellated around Kant and Fichte, and in particular the writings of Schiller, Novalis, the Schlegel brothers, that is, poetry as Republican speech, and Holderlin, but it crystallised in Schelling's philosophy of art, in which he writes, philosophy of art in the larger sense is the presentation of the absolute world in the form of art. Um, and within this, or in parallel to this crystallisation, is Marx's own description of communism as the absolutely free association of free producers, which is where we find the closest convergence um, to romantic ideas about absolute art and freedom. Um, poetry moves beyond knowledge to the absolute in this view, just as communism in Marx's Private Property and Communism of 1844 is, quote, the genuine resolution of the conflicts between man and nature, and between man and man, the true resolution of the conflict between existence and being, between objectification and self-affirmation, between freedom and necessity, between individual and species. So crucially, for Marx in this account, capitalism was the fetishized absolute, illusory and empty, an alternative mode of idealism. Artistic communism would be the true absolute. Still, the affinity remains subterranean, but it remains striking because incompatible with the alluring negative of art, which Adorno reads as the harmless trace left after modernism's last backwater of artistic autonomy is exhausted. For Adorno, art gained autonomy when it no longer mattered. He reads Mahler as a late romantic crying out in a language too depleted to carry the cry. Artworks start to interrogate their own forms and their own mediums, looking for autonomy there, and a negative dialectic of substance wears up. For Martin, a lineage could be back-projected, um, arts and crafts, situationism, suprematism, to the older system programmes call for a unity of the people and philosophy in mythology, as an echo to Marx's unity of proletariat and philosophy in communism. The absolute artwork for Adorno, opposed to the absolute commodity, would have no equivalence. It would resist, cut across, the dialectic of enlightenment from which equality of all became, as in a nightmare, the capitalist equivalence of all. Poet and critic Kirsten Sutherland's um, reading of Romanticism 
also combines these threads, so let's take a look at it. Um, the stake of life and the non-equivalence of poetry in particular. He also adds a limit that poets and poems reach, a kind of high watermark of their struggles to be non-equivalent and to express life, uh, non-capitalist life. In Sutherland's essay, Poetry or Emptying, he chooses Wordsworth, the Grundrisse and Beethoven as his guides. Quote, Marx writes in the Grundrisse that the absolute working out of, of his creative potentialities and the development of all human powers is the end in itself for every living individual. Um, and this recalls Stuart Martin's life versus capitalism. Uh, again to quote from Sutherland, My poetry has always been obscurely determined by what I think and how I feel about comprehensively wasting my life. The fact that life can be wasted at all is a fundamental cognition for poetry. The fear of wasting life fundamentally shapes and directs the impulses of poetic creation, and fear of comprehensively wasting it defines the whole relation of expression to intensity. Sutherland reads Wordsworth um, as the first straining of this fear of waste. Straining as industrialization kicks in, the prelude straining to the limits of subjecthood. Writing poetry must therefore be figured as difficult, as struggle, as hard, and as failing. Quote again, what life means and what, if anything, could be saved by not wasting it may be very unclear, but the strain not to that the strain not to is intrinsic in poetry. Poetry strains to express life and cancel loss, and the strain is instinctive, emotional, cognitive, sexual, and sometimes orgasmic, often radiantly all at once. If poetry is a commodity, or whether its production is really subsumed, are live questions, but for Sutherland, something has to dialectically punch through, and what does is the strain intrinsic to poetry. Its description reads more like protest, riot, or political violence, and we'll return to this. But its name is poetry. Sutherland's reading of Capital as a satire, a bitter, miserable joke which political economy and liberal society takes as a truth, finds itself a camp satire in the poetry of Kevin Davies um, and the criticism of Christopher Nealon. It is also about the strain not to waste life or to get life back, almost a theme of communist poetry. For example, this poem by Kevin Davies. What gets me is the robots are doing my job, but I don't get the money. Some extrapolated node of expansion and contraction gets my money, which I need for time travel. At first, writes Neelan, this poem by Kevin Davies seems to be just the swift dodge of a tedious sort of lecturing political poetry. Yes, the speaker is complaining about the theft of his wages, but he does it science fictionally and by way of a dated science fiction. Um, Neelan writes in in his essay Camp Messianism or The Hopes of Poetry in Late Late Capitalism. But the campiness of the obsolete sci-fi conceit has something to play off against, namely the description of the system that steals the speaker's wages, the extrapolated node of expansion contraction. This performance, I think of it as a kind of stance, is designed to make the poem's last emphatic phrase, time travel, escape for a moment, its camp value and reveal an extravagant demand that the speaker get his money and his history back, that he be freed to burrow back behind the process that made even the expropriating robots obsolete. In fact, I would argue that it is capitalism combined with colonial force which has performed extraordinary feats of time travel and of resurrection, keeping the dead alive as their work keeps accumulating surplus value, dividing the world so that life expectancy varies, 
as the ratio of wage to subsistence cost ratchets into a stepped diagonal, impossible to cross. Davy's time travel conceit is a genre, cast in an obsolete form, and this should also alert us back to questions about um, the autonomy of art under real subsumption to capital. So different kinds of subsumption. So real subsumption is the um, the phase in which um, an area of life and its reproduction has been um, actually uh, subsumed within the capitalist logic and within the capitalist system. Uh, before that stage, uh, people talk about a formal subsumption. So this is a way in which one area or areas of that that um, the, those processes, those processes of life, have become subsumed into capitalist system, but only in one aspect. So um, one aspect has been captured. For example, uh, wages have been introduced, but um, the processes remain otherwise unchanged. Marina Vishmit um, also considers uh, Claire Roberts' idea of a third subsumption stage, um, imaginary subsumption, um, in which an institution, for example, an in a university or an art gallery, um, arranges itself and behaves as if it were a factory, even though it isn't, or isn't yet. Um, it arranges itself as if it was um, fully subsumed, as if it was um, acting under real subsumption to capital. Um, why would it do that? Um, in some ways, it's a kind of proprietary uh, formal subsumption. Um, and the idea of an imaginary subsumption riffs off Marx's idea of fictitious capital, which is um, finance projected into the future, capital projected into the future, um, and imaginary prices, which is uh, Marx's thought experiment about um, imagining things which are not commodities being given a price. So, for example, the price of honour or the price of love. Um, Blockbuster films and popular novels written by teams of anonymous ghostwriters, um, manufactured music bands, clearly map onto the idea of real subsumption and full commodity form with minimal contradiction. Um, after the familiar periodization of Jameson's decisive note, quote, what has happened is that aesthetic production today has become integrated into commodity production generally. Um, what is left is pastiche and all the old genres ready to be tried again and it is called postmodernism, where it's flip side, a renewed historicism. Um, what is left for criticism within this view is basically sociological analysis, considering why something is popular or was produced, what that tells us about capitalism, or a retreat to an innocuous close reading of materials and lives. But then, as the process carries on, and decades and crises and bubbles go by, what is left in cultural works, now fully attuned only to exchange value, is in Marina Vishmet's phrase, quote, not even a memory of loss. Um, and then we've come a long way from the tragic last gasp sense Adorno read in modernism. Uh, but this is too simple a story. Um, in smaller spheres than blockbuster films, less obvious culture industry productions seem to generate secondary fields. Um, and a secondary field uh, is kind of derived from Bourdieu's ideas of art production. Um, a doubleness opens up and contradictions loom larger. Caught up as commodities, but not created to be every inch attuned to sales. That isn't entirely what these art productions are created as. Sutherland's idea of poetry which embodies strain. Marina Vishmit, following Gail Day, argues 
quote, against the view that all of the contradictory and self-undermining determinations of a capitalist society are suddenly suspended at the point of its complete integration. But there remains the question of whether it is possible to see beyond this pseudo-political economy to the actual process through which subsumption is extended, stepwise and by means of class struggle, to new domains of social reality. One of these stepwise movements is in the opening and contraction of fields layered in fields which make art possible. What are these smaller fields, intellectual cliques, habitual circuits of cultural capital? And how do they produce the feeling of autonomy or intention which makes sense of an art object as art? Nicholas Brown, in his essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Its Real Subsumption Under Capital, posits Adorno and Bourdieu combined as a Janus figure of the double field. Adorno looks back and finds a residual negation. Bourdieu reads emergence in a restricted field, for example, of art production. Within this field, formal concerns come to the fore. An aestheticization of genre becomes a problem posed, the problem of the canvas of lyric form of the pull of harmonic resolution, of the jump cut. Brown writes, Even when the aestheticization of genre doesn't lead to an obviously attractive politics, it does lead to the possibility of art as such, a possibility which, today, itself entails a minimal politics. A time travel narrative can only have one of two endings. Either history can be changed or it can't. Back to the future, or le jeté. So the problem of the time travel flick is how to keep these two incompatible possibilities in play, until the end, and if possible, even beyond the end, so you can have a sequel. Um, so this is why, for Nicholas Brown, the Terminator is an artwork, but Avatar is entirely a commodity. Um, make of that what you will. The restricted field, the second field, brings back or holds onto a layer of formal subsumption within or underhanging of wider real subsumption. Or, there's a real contradiction here. It might make the conditions for art possible, but not necessarily much more than that. It might have been a subtle dialectical move to get this far, but it isn't very far, as Marina Vishmit suggests, quote, The use value of art is denegated or dismissed as shallowly ideological. In the service of a chiliastic and one-sided prognosis of the irresistible spread of social abstraction across the contemporary life world, in which contradiction and resistance become notional in general and voluntaristic at best. In other words, a doomy last clinging, clinging to contradiction and resistance pervades a one-sided prognosis. Another dialectical burn, because once more, everything seems to be getting stuck. Um, and so I think this leads us then to the second section, which is on sabotage um, and real abstractions, and therefore uh, violence. Um, and this question, can knowledge be glimpsed when we thought we were just reading the market signals of a glittering art commodity? Annie McClanahan's book, Dead Pledges, Debt, Crisis and 21st Century Culture, is a study of debt post-2008 crash, and how that debt is figured in art products, from small distribution poems to globally distributed horror films. It is a cultural form for McClanahan that has the same reach as abstract labour. A dead pledge is a translation of the French etymology for mortgage. There is a further claim that the solidarity of debt creates power, but also in a further nuance on the idea of capitalist accumulation and time travel. Um, 
Debt allows a turn towards knowledge in the present, a particularly powerful moment of demystification. The work of two earlier scholars is extended here. Mark Schell's Money, Language and Thought argued that, quote, credit or belief involves the very ground of aesthetic experience, and the same medium that seems to confer belief in money also seems to confer it in literature. Um, in, uh, secondly, in genres of the credit economy, mediating value in 18th and 19th century Britain, Mary Poovey argued that the novel taught readers how to believe in things that couldn't be proved, making possible the leaps of faith necessary to the capitalist economy and, quote, making the system of credit and debt usable and the market model of value familiar. McClanahan finds that debt, ubiquitous yet elusive as a social form, connects the personal, the strange experience of receiving a personalised credit card offer, the fear of housing insecurity, the public scene of eviction, with the systemic, the scale of the economic system as a whole, and of the complex global financial markets that have driven world economic growth for the last four decades in a way which is clearer and starker after crisis than the long fetishized scenes of market exchange, selling of labour power or consumption can be. It is four decades because 1973 or at least the early 70s is the dividing line when economic growth and profitability in the real economy slowed and then never returned. That is, the rate of return on production went down, as illuminated at length by Robert Brenner in his book the economics of global turbulence. The post-war boom driven by the US was, so far, an exceptional time in the history of capitalism, and increasing levels of debt drive everything at every level ever since. Debt is, of course, a cashing in on the future to pay for the present. But it's not only that. As Gail Day intrenchantly corrective mood points out, cultural theorists focus on futurity, but finance also trades on micro-divisions of the near present, as much as it does on past accumulation. Crisis is these temporal directions collapsing back on us. McClanahan sees crisis as more than this, as, quote, an invaluable historical hermeneutic, compelling us to anticipate limits, to imagine alternatives, to welcome collapse, and thus to resist the end of history, triumphalism, characteristic of late capitalist ideology in boom times. Crisis, you could say, allows us to, allows us to glimpse the owl of Minerva in the autumnal afternoon instead of only at dusk. The historical glimpse made possible in a time of crisis is afforded us, finally, says McClanahan, by cultural form. Autumn here is an idea familiar from Giovanni Origi, that cycles of capitalism centering on each new hegemon reach an autumnal stage as each power centre of trade starts to wane. Symptoms of crisis accompany this autumnal stage, except now perhaps there is no new centre taking hold. Winter is coming, but only winter. Um, so the book Dead Pledges discusses what these collectivities might look like and have historically looked like. Um, debt strikes, burning eviction notices, destroying property before a lender repossesses it. McCannahan um, writes, as a manifesto from the debt collective, a group comprising the Corinthian students as well as hundreds of other student debtors states, alone our debts are a burden, together they make us powerful. There is a sense in which a commodity broken up before it reaches market is artistic communism in movement. McClanahan, McClanahan writes, 
Where credit seeks to ensure the smooth transfer of money and commodities while deferring payment to the future, sabotage destroys the commodity, blocks exchange, voids payment. As Morgan Adamson puts it, writing on the Chilean activist Francesco Tapia, who burned student loan permissory notes valued at $500 million and displayed their ashes as art, sabotage intervenes in the material practices of accounting and accountability that undergird forms of exploitation under crisis capitalism. Um, as such, ashes blow all the way up to the most general form of sabotage as crisis, just as credit for Marx, quote, suspends the barriers to the realisation of capital only by raising them to their most general form. Can a poem also be a lacuna of use value, a gap in the street, a flooded ground? Come find me, for I am absolutely useless. Such possible lacunae which flash up within an understanding of real abstractions, capitalism's violence enforced ordering of the world to facilitate accumulation, are further considered in the criticism of Amy Diath. For Diath, post-2008, is a period of, quote, a renewed critical effort to understand real abstractions as both the source and the consequence of a process in which the organisation of capitalist society is formed determined by value. Writing on unsociable poetry, antagonism and, and abstraction in contemporary feminized poetics, Diath works with the idea of moments derived from writers such as Chris Arthur, pointing out that it is a series of, of constitutive moments in a totality of social relations and its reproduction, um, which fold over into open negation, totality and its reproduction, source and consequence. And in that gap, as a moving totality must determine its own temporality, capital's temporality, there is a gap where counter-languages um, can and do work. And I'll return to this idea in my final section on counter-languages and fanon. Uh, but for now, moving on to the third theme, speculation. So there's something troubling in this implication, falling back from Annie McCannahan's afternoon owl, um, glimpsed in the autumn for which winter is coming, but never spring, back down to a fatalism of process. Gale Day's dialectical passions surveys dialectical criticism and finds that Quote, by rendering the commodity's twofold nature a dualism at the social core rather than a contradiction, by simplifying a narrative of social abstraction, and by evacuating social exploitation from its accounts, cultural theory traverses the account of commodity fetishism only to return us to a fetishistic social theory and an associated fatalistic or occasionally voluntaristic politics. Gale continues, what is turned into a metaphor and then literalised at the level of social theory is then turned into a metaphor again in the analysis of cultural and aesthetic forms. For um, Marina Vishmed, in her book Speculation as a Mode of Production, uh, social exploitation is core to understanding art, and art's open negativity is more powerful and more potentially culpable for capitalism's functioning. If art has been instrumentalised by a society organising itself around speculation as a social form, from the gamble of commodity production to the conjecture of complex derivatives, features and insurance wrapped financial products. Um, the restricted field of art emerges as a potential testing ground for creative capital, a very much recast artistic communism and artistic capitalism intertwined uh, with the latter in the ascendant. It's no uh, coincidence that we talk about, or the phrase is used, creative 
industries. The creativity of the artist is the model for productivity, but not just this. Art is a tool of socialization, from primary schools to the fully financialized higher education sector, from regeneration, revalorization of land, imagining new communities, to the socialization of populations and political entities. Its residual autonomy has found its capitalist use, Fishmit notes. Quote, an instrumentality which speculates with the autonomy and free universality bestowed upon art in an unfree society in order to make its ethical claims. From specialization, the division of labor, class stratification, art as an activity was established as non-labor and, like the commodity, concealed the labor that it was. This has tended to render art a constitutively, a constitutively pliable, empty and speculative category of activity, a form of thought or nomination which often seems suggestively close to the protean forms of capital value. Um, the openness and indeterminacy of speculation is stabilized again on the level of exploitation, surplus population, incarceration, and the speed of wear and tear of laboring human bodies. Um, but there's a dialectical second side opened up in this understanding, a transverse negative, um, which I take to mean that art can be a horizon line of relation cut across the diagonals of a damaged world. Speculating across the social dimension as the revolutionary under-horizon of capitalism's speculative resource. Quote, A discontent with representation has long been central to aesthetic politics, a discontent also commonly voiced by today's social movements. Speculation is a mode of social, cultural and conceptual production that can operate on and in reality, that displaces the specular relation between representation and the real, and that is not content with improvement as a vector for change. It is a relation, not a prescription, of open negativity vital for cutting across dominant tendencies. These dominant tendencies are those of generalization, integration, capture as indices of critical insight, and the vague prescriptions on action. Um, beyond representation lies another world seeded within this one, and an activist speculative position in the relation of open negativity. Um, to elucidate this point, um, one recent work, Sophie Lewis's Full Surrogacy Now, for example, is clearly both a speculative politics of communist surrogacy and a critique of the present, that is, of capitalist surrogacy all at once, um, working within its title, Temporality, which is Now. Um, and finally then, Art's Emancipatory Promise within counter languages fan on onwards. Um, where would we actually look for such a horizon line of transverse negativity? Where would we, where would we look for it in poetry? Um, languages encode across and within language. The two theorists set running a materialist conception of resistance here. Voloshinov argued that language coincides with consciousness and the signs forged by group interaction where ideology ramifies. Counter language and suppressed speech isn't heard, but is still carried in these materials. Fanon argued that a reversal of signs, the translating movement which is colonialism, needs to occur materially, violently. In The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon writes of the Western educated or French speaking intellectual stroke artist, quote, as a figure for the oppressed group as a whole, the intellectual must now be seen as a kind of text that requires a violent reversal of the codes that constitute it. In heightened form, 
the intellectual lives out the cultural linguistic struggles of the group as a whole. Um, this violent reversal, a counter-language that Fanon delineates, was subsequently the site of linguistic struggles for poets countering colonial regimes of power and meaning to choose one dialectical passage recently discussed in David Austin's book Dread, Poetry and Freedom, Linton Crazy Johnson's 1975 essay, The Politics of the Lyrics of Reggae Music, argues that the Rasta is, quote, a dialectical representation of the contradictions of a society and indeed of an entire epoch of history. The slow progress from here to the, to the divided reception of Crazy Johnson's Penguin Selected in 2002, the first edition of that book, um, is charted by Austin. In a chapter called Dread Dialectics, Austin notes that, quote, a dread beat in music can mean an exceptionally good beat, but to suggest that a situation is dread is to imply a dreadful or bad situation, really bad. Crazy Johnson, in his essays on the politics of lyric, stay on the dialectical line, quote, that the language of the poetry of Jamaican music is Rastafarian or biblical language cannot simply be put down to the colonizer and his satanic missionaries. The quest for spiritual well-being, this impelling need to be free of the inner pain, the inner tension, the oscillation between the psychic states of despair and rebellion, does not necessarily oppose the physical quest for liberation. Um, um, from... Um, a very different history. Um, Nat Raha's critical work also combines the, the idea of open negation with one of counter languages. Um, in her PhD, Marxism in Queer Theory and Post 1950s Poetics, Raha tracks um, such lineages given an early description by Boone, um, now into the post 2008 critical landscape, writing that. Quote, I develop new means of expressing and encoding feeling and suffering, and pushing back against the reifications of desire and work. Um, the pushing back is one of te is one texture of Vishmit's relation of open negation. Um, Nat Raha's critical work also draws together a lineage of queer readings, for example, Bruce Boone's Gay Language as Political Praxis, which is an essay on Frank O'Hara. Boone writes, it is not unnatural that criticism refuses to hear gay language, for that language is in fact the structure of the dominated group's inadmissible consciousness, its material reality, as Velotinov would say. Um, and this is why then uh, Frank O'Hara wrote in a poem that he was really tired of always going down. It took three decades for an adequate critical reading of this line to appear, because it simply couldn't, couldn't be heard. Um, I would love to go into um, lots of these writers in, in further detail um, perhaps afterwards um, we can chat but for now to sum up with a final um, bringing together of different strands art poetry really could be a scene of non-labor it isn't only that concepts are in antagonistic relation to one another but that the speculative moves with the negativity of thought separation from material labour, which is um, a quote from Adorno's book, Hegel, Three Studies. The negativity of thought separation from material labour. From their own position, the critics I have surveyed push dialectical criticism towards its emancipatory promise, exemplifying how thought, art, poetry must be, quote, defined through what it lives off, because it is then that the non-identity posited as identity with capitalist speculation ends.
or is weakened. Um, and from that weakening, things can go on from there. Thank you.